Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good evening, everyone, and good morning for whomever is connecting with us across the world. Today, tonight, we're here to discuss the world fresh water resources, challenges and opportunities. And we're lucky to have uh, one of the lead uh, world experts in freshwater issues and a member of the U.S. National Academy of Science, um, Professor Peter Gleck. Um, he is the co-founder and the president uh, emeritus of the Pacific Institute and the winner of 2018 Carl Sagan Prize of Science popularization and tonight he's here to talk about freshwater. Uh, freshwater which is a vital element for human and environmental health, industrial activities, food production and the production and use of energy and much more. As a human population and economies grows, uh, grow, the pressure on limited water resources um, are also growing, leading to the, a variety of challenges and opportunities, including water scarcity, pollution, water-related diseases, ecological disruption, and much more. Uh, tonight, we're here to discuss the sustainable outlook that comes with the future of fresh water and the pathways of achieving this outlook. Peter, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Professor Al-Kazami. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with all of you today. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you might be. Um, I'm going to talk about the global freshwater challenge. I'm going to talk about problems, uh, the current global situation. Uh, but I'm also going to talk about solutions for freshwater uh, and what I see as a path forward to a much more sustainable future for water. Um, I'm going to talk for a little bit of time, and then I'm going and I'm going to show some slides. But I do also hope there will be an opportunity for some question and answer at the end. Uh, let me start by sharing my screen, I believe. So hopefully you can all see this. Is this uh, clear to everyone? Yes, it's perfect. Okay, very good. So let me start by providing a little bit of global context, uh, some background to the nature of the water challenges that we face. Uh, first of all, and perhaps the most serious, is that even today, uh, there are billions of people around the world without access to basic water services. Uh, people without access to safe drinking water, people without access to adequate sanitation services, and despite all of the other challenges we have around water, uh, this in many ways is the worst, in my opinion, the worst of the global challenges that we face. Uh, the second issue is that we have, in many places around the world, infrastructure to provide water services that is either missing or that is increasingly old and aging, and we are not investing adequately in replacing or expanding that infrastructure. Uh, the third issue is there little, there's little public awareness of global water problems. Uh, people care enormously about fresh water, 
But in many cases, the politicians and sometimes the public are not aware of the nature of the water problems that we face. Another issue is that there is an increasing threat of violence and disputes about water resources around the world. And I'll talk a little bit about each of these problems moving forward. But we see increasing conflicts worldwide uh, where we're fighting over access to water or control of water or water is being used as a weapon or tool of conflicts. There are very few coherent international water policies. We're not very good as as an international water community uh, in developing policies at the global level. Uh, But there are also often very few coherent national water policies. There are many governments that have not developed water laws and water policies to address water quality, water rights, access to water, to address conflicts over water with neighbors. Uh, All of those are challenges. Some other thoughts about challenges. Uh, Obviously, around the world, extreme events are a big issue. We worry about droughts. We worry about floods. Uh, We worry about water-scarce areas like uh, the Middle East, where water is just physically limited in its availability. We worry about overdrafting groundwater in many parts of the world, uh, where we're relying on groundwater resources, but we are using those groundwater resources faster than nature recharges them. And that is an unsustainable action as well. We also worry about water quality uh, and decaying urban water infrastructure. In many parts of the world, the problem isn't necessarily water quantity, but it's water quality, uh, water contamination in in different forms in different places. A major problem around the world, of course, is collapsing ecosystems. Uh, In many parts of the world, the water that humans need comes from natural ecosystems. And in many parts of the world, those ecosystems are at increasing threat uh, from collapse or contamination or overuse of fresh water resources. So we worry about ecological problems as well. I've already mentioned political conflict over water is growing, but another major issue, of course, is long-term climate change. That is climate change caused by human actions. And especially, of course, for this audience, we worry about those climate changes that affect the water resources of the world. So the big question with all of these water challenges is, how do we respond? What I'm going to do is describe a little bit in more detail some of these particular challenges, but then I'm going to try and address this question, how should we respond? So again, as background, one of the things that is most interesting to me as a water scientist is that water is connected to everything that we care about. It's connected to infrastructure. It's connected to energy, the way we use energy and the energy requirements for our water systems. It's connected to the environment. It's connected to agriculture. 80% of the water that humans use goes to grow food to provide for the world's population. It's connected to forestry and ecosystem management. And of course, as we've learned, especially in the last nine months or so, it's connected very closely to public health. Uh, And I'll talk about some of the public health issues as well. But another thing that's so wonderful in many ways about water is that it's interdisciplinary. It's not just a hydrology question, a natural sciences question. It's an engineering question. It's a legal question. 
It's a political science issue. It's connected to planning, the way we plan our urban environment or our rural environment. Uh, It's connected to economics and the way we price resources or the way we subsidize investments or the way we uh, fund infrastructure. And so no matter what your background is, no matter what your interest is, water is connected, I would argue, to everything that we really care about. So let me go back to some of these early first questions that I raised. Uh, I said earlier that one of the most important challenges facing us today is the failure to meet basic human needs for water. According to the United Nations, there are 700 or 800 million people around the world today that do not have access to safe, affordable drinking water. There are 2.4 billion people worldwide that don't have access to adequate sanitation services. And that's this issue of basic human needs for water. And in many ways, that's inexcusable. We understand the technology and the economics and the institutions needed to meet basic human needs for water, but we have failed to meet those basic needs for such a large number of people around the world. And just a quick reminder of the importance of a modern water system, uh, here's what most people know about where their water comes from. Somewhere it rains, and then something happens, and then we turn on our faucets and wonderful, often if we're lucky enough, wonderful, clean, fresh water comes out. But what happens in this little box in the middle is a mystery to many people. And that failure to understand both where our water comes from and then what happens to bring it to us is a major educational challenge. It's a challenge for meeting the the basic human needs that we understand we must meet and how to figure out what to do with this box, this question mark in the middle. And when we don't meet basic human needs for water, and when people don't understand what's required to bring safe, affordable, clean water to us, bad things happen. Uh, The failure to meet basic human needs for water results in water-related diseases, cholera, typhoid, dysentery, guinea worm, schistosomiasis. There are a whole series of diseases worldwide that are the result of the failure to meet basic human needs for water. And these are some of the cartoons from a century ago when even then we understood that cholera was a water-related disease, that dysentery was a water-related disease, and that death and illness came from the failure to provide safe water. But when we do provide safe water, when we do invest in the infrastructure for modern water treatment, we can eliminate water-related diseases. This is a graph that shows the number of deaths per 100,000 population in the United States from 1900 up until the 1960s. And in the United States, we started introducing chlorination and wastewater treatment around 1910, 1909, 1911. We started to build that box, that modern water treatment system that today in most developed countries around the world, has successfully eliminated cholera and dysentery and typhoid. And you can see cholera death rates in the U.S. here basically dropped to zero. We have no cholera in the United States now. 
unless it's brought in by travelers who go to parts of the world where cholera is still a challenge, because we invested in modern water treatment. But I would note that even here in the United States, even in the one of the most developed countries in the world, we have not completely solved our fresh water and sanitation problems. Uh, this is a slide from Flint, Michigan. For those of you unfamiliar with this, a few years ago, Flint, Michigan, which is a major urban area relatively close to the city of Detroit, began to have a very serious water quality problem, despite the fact that they had invested for many years in a very sophisticated water system, but they made some changes in that water system and the water quality dropped. Uh, this is a poor, disadvantaged community. Uh, it's, a, it's a heavily urban area. Uh, and all of a sudden, many of, the, uh, many of the residents in Flint, Michigan started to receive bad contaminated water, contaminated with lead, contaminated with other chemicals, because we failed to invest and we failed to monitor our modern water system. Uh, and so Flint, Michigan is an example of a problem that even a rich developed country can have uh, when we don't pay attention and when we don't invest in our modern water systems. And this happened several years ago, and it's still today a problem in Flint, Michigan, and it's a problem in other communities around the United States as well. But there's a long history of this. Uh, in the United States, the environmental movement, the start of the environmental movement in the 1960s, was in part stimulated by concern about freshwater resources. Uh, in 1968, the Cuyahoga River in the state of Ohio caught fire. And obviously, what, what, it wasn't the water that was burning. It was the contaminants that we were pouring into the river that caught fire, the oils, the, the chemicals. Uh, this is a photograph from a 1952 fire on the Cuyahoga River. But in 1968, when the river caught fire, it was shown on national television. And that was one of the things that that raised awareness in the United States about the challenges with water quality in America. Uh, and it led to the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, which are two major federal laws that helped, that came out of the environmental movement in the 1960s and helped bring awareness to Americans about the need for providing safe water and sanitation and controlling industrial contaminants as well. But I would note that, again, even today, we have not completely solved the problem. This is a photograph from the James River in the United States, which caught fire when there was a major oil spill uh, that then ignited. So even today, we still have problems. Just as we do with safe water and sanitation, we have problems with clean rivers uh, and dealing with industrial contamination. Again, a more recent challenge. We have the Great Lakes in the United States, five enormous freshwater lakes that are shared between the United States and Canada. But even here, we continue to have uh, water quality problems. This is a photograph of a toxic algal bloom a few years ago that shut down the drinking water system in Toledo, a major city, Toledo, Ohio, because the water system could not handle cleaning up the toxic al algae uh, that was contaminating its intakes. 
and shut down the water system for several days in Toledo, Ohio. And this toxic algal bloom is the result of rising temperatures on the Great Lakes and increasing contamination from agricultural chemicals, from nitrates and phosphates. We continue to have ecological challenges with water. Uh, we take more water out of the system than the environment can typically handle. We have fish die-offs. We have loss of uh, salmon runs in the west coast of the United States. Uh, and so we do worry, even today, about the ecological losses that result from human overuse of water from our natural systems. And basically, all of the water that humans take out of the system comes from those natural systems that themselves require water to maintain their health. Another major issue that I touched on at the beginning is water in politics and water in international security and conflict. Uh, this is something that we do at the Pacific Institute. We look at the connections between water and conflict. Uh, we maintain what's called the water conflict chronology. Uh, and if those of you interested in this issue, Google water conflict chronology or go to the Pacific Institute's website and I'll provide some web links at the end. Uh, this is an open source database of water conflicts worldwide going back thousands of years uh, to conflicts over water in the ancient Middle East. Each one of these entries, as you can see on the map, this is a, a map, uh, but you can also get the specific data from that database. Uh, each of these entries is an example where there is conflict or has been in the past conflict over water. And when I talk about conflict over water, I'm talking about one of three things. I'm talking about water that uh, triggers conflict, where there's a violence associated with access to water or disputes about control over water, so water as a trigger of conflict. The second category is water as a casualty of conflict, where water systems are targeted in conflicts that may start for other reasons, for political reasons, for economic reasons, for ideological reasons, uh, but where water systems are casualties, are victims of that kind of conflict. And the third category is where water or water systems are used as weapons during conflicts. Again, conflicts that may start for another reason. Uh, and each of these points is an example of one of those things. Uh, this is a graph that shows data from the water conflict chronology. Uh, and there you can see the website. It's at worldwater.org. Or again, Google water conflict chronology and you'll find it. Uh, these are data from 1980 to 2018, and it shows, to 2019, actually, and it shows the number of events per year, again, broken out by those three categories. Green is weapon, red is casualty, blue is trigger of, trigger, where water is a trigger of conflict. And you can see a number of different things. First of all, most distressingly, you can see the large increase in the number of events per year in the last decade or so. And then you can see a very large number of these have been where water has been a casualty of conflict, uh, and increasingly where water is a trigger of conflict, where control of water or scarcity of water drives that conflict. I also mentioned at the beginning of my talk the issue of climate change. We know that climate change is happening. We know that humans are responsible. Uh, and we also know 
that water resources are among the most important and most vulnerable things uh, associated with climate change. A little bit of background. Uh, This is a graph that shows 800,000 years of CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere uh, recovered from ice cores and other paleoclimatic data going back 800,000 years. Uh, 800,000 years in the past is on the bottom left of this graph, and the present zero is on the bottom right. That's where we are today. Each of the little dots is a data point showing carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere, and it shows that over time, naturally, CO2 concentrations go up and go down. Uh, When CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere are low, the world has been in an ice age. When they're high, we're in an interglacial warm period. Um, But you can also see that over the last 800,000 years, CO2 concentrations have never been higher than 280 parts per million in the atmosphere. And that concentration is on the y-axis on the right. But you can also see that today, the CO2 concentration is over 400 parts per million. And it's gone up from 280 parts per million to over 400 parts per million in just the last 100 years. And that is the Industrial Revolution. That is the burning of fossil fuels that has contributed that massive increase in CO2 in the atmosphere. And that is climate change. That is the human influence on our climate. And we know that climate changes are already affecting water resources. We're already seeing increases in rainfall, extreme rainfall events, We're seeing worsening droughts. Uh, We're seeing loss of snowpack and ice in areas dependent on snowfall uh, and areas where we have glaciers. Uh, And we know that these extreme events are getting worse. Uh, This is a quote from the National Assessment on Climate, which is an assessment done in the United States every four years. This is an assessment, though, that was done 20 years ago. This was the first National Climate Assessment in the United States. And even then, 20 years ago, we said, quote, the evidence that humans are changing the water cycle of the United States is increasingly compelling. 20 years ago, we could already see evidence that humans were influencing the hydrologic cycle, changing extreme events uh, and changing uh, the severity of both floods and droughts. And the evidence is even stronger today that these events are getting worse and worse. And another example of this is that Munich Re, which is one of the world's leading reinsuring companies around the world, responsible for insuring against extreme events, has said, quote, the only plausible explanation for the rise in weather-related catastrophes is climate change. And this graph shows weather-related disasters uh, from 1980 up until 2016, uh, and it shows storms in purple and wildfires in orange and severe storm events in green and drought in orange. These these are uh, disasters that are weather-related. And the reinsurance company, which is responsible for understanding and, of course, unfortunately paying for weather-related catastrophes, they understand that this is a change due to climate change. So that's the nature of the challenges we face. Uh, That's the nature of the threats that we face. But I'd like to talk about solutions for the remainder of the time that I have. I'm going to argue that 
it's time for 21st century soft path water solutions. Uh, and that not only is it time for these solutions, but that these solutions are already happening. That the good news here is we know how to solve water problems. We know how to move toward more sustainable use of freshwater resources, and that there are examples of these successful soft path water solutions everywhere around the world. And let me tell you what I mean by this, by comparing the hard path, which is what I believe we've been doing for the last century or more, with the soft path, which is what I believe we need to do to move forward. So in the hard path, the idea was let's build infrastructure for water supply. We'll, f- we'll build big dams, we'll build desalination plants, we'll build centralized water treatment. That infrastructure has brought enormous benefits to us. Without that hard infrastructure, we would not be able to satisfy the water needs of today. But I would like to argue that in the soft path, we need to Continue to think about water supply, but we need to rethink water supply. And I'll give you some examples of that in a moment. The hard path said, let's satisfy projected water demand. We'll think about what the water demand will be in the future, and we'll figure out a way to build water supply to meet that projected demand. And the soft path says, let's rethink what we mean by demand. Let's rethink what we use water for and perhaps use water more carefully and more efficiently. And I'll come back to that and give some examples of that as well. The hard path said, water is an economic good. Uh, Let's price water. Let's treat water as a standard economic commodity. uh, And that's the way we will manage the economic aspect of water. And the soft path says, yes, water is an economic good, but it's also a human right. And the UN declared a human right to water in 2010. And let's think about how to use both the human right to water and economics to to meet our water challenges. The hard path says let's deal with centralized water treatment. We'll produce one kind of water quality that is potable water use. uh, And that's what we will deliver to end users. And the soft path says, first of all, protect the source water quality, don't contaminate our rivers, don't contaminate groundwater, don't contaminate uh, our water sources. But secondly, let's match the quality of the supply to the quality of the need. We may not always need potable water. Let's match the quality of the supply we have and the quality of the need. The hard path gave no thought to ecosystems because we didn't know about or we didn't understand or we didn't care about the importance of natural ecosystems. And the soft path says, just as we have to meet human eco, human needs for water, we have to protect ecosystem needs for water as well. And we're increasingly understanding the importance of protecting the hydrologic ecosystem needs as well. And finally, the hard path said, let's have one kind of water institute, an institution, let's have centralized management, let's not necessarily worry about public participation. But the soft path says community participation is incredibly important in understanding the needs of our communities, and we need flexible water institutions, not necessarily only centralized management of water. 
So that's quickly the hard path versus the soft path. I've written about this in the past. Uh, if you Google soft path for water, there's a great deal of information about new ways of thinking about some of these solutions. But let me talk about specifically a few of these uh, answers. I mentioned, of course, the human right to water. The UN declared a human right to water in 2010. And we're now trying to understand what that really means as a tool for helping us meet basic human needs for water. I talked about new sources of supply. In some parts of the world, we need traditional supply options. We need traditional big centralized infrastructure. But there are new sources of supply as well. On the top left is a photograph of what we call the groundwater replenishment system. This is an example in the United States, in California, where we are collecting wastewater. We are treating that wastewater to a very high standard. And we are injecting it into the ground to replenish groundwater, which previously we had been overdrafting and overpumping. We are recharging our groundwater aquifers with very high quality, high, highly treated wastewater. Uh, on the top right is a photograph of uh, a desalination plant in Singapore, where they are also treating wastewater to an incredibly high standard and reusing it for industrial use, for domestic use, uh, and for a recharging of natural ecosystems. Uh, of course, desalination is an incredibly important tool as well. It's a new source of supply. It doesn't require taking water out of the ground. It doesn't require overdrafting our rivers that are often overdrafted. Uh, and of course, the Middle East and, and Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates and many of the countries in the Middle East have been using desalination for a long time, but that's a new source of supply as well. Uh, the bottom, the bottom right is a giant cistern that was built in Los Angeles to capture storm water, uh, for use in landscape irrigation in the wet periods, uh, that we could use during the dry periods. Uh, this kind of stormwater capture is another new source of supply when previously the idea was let's get stormwater out of our system as quickly as possible to prevent flooding. So there are new sources of supply. Wastewater treatment and reuse, I've mentioned as well. Increasingly, for example, in California, we now capture and reuse about 18 to 20 percent of our wastewater uh, for various purposes, we use it for industrial uses, we use it for agriculture, and we're increasingly going to be using it for high-quality urban use uh, as well. Desalination, I've already mentioned. It's expensive, but in places where we do not have sufficient natural sources, uh, obviously it's an important component of our supply options. Ecosystem restoration. This is a photograph of a major dam on the Elwha River in the northwestern part of the United States. Uh, it was a dam that was used a little bit for power. Uh, it was used to drive uh, a wood, uh, a lumber mill for a while, but it also had destroyed a salmon run on a precious river in the northwest. A decision was made a number of years ago to remove that dam and to restore the ecosystem of the Elwha River. And this is a photograph of that same river after that dam had been removed. Uh, the salmon fishery uh, has been restored and is growing in size. The ecosystem is being restored, uh, and the river itself is coming back to a natural, healthy state. 
In, a, in the United States, we have taken down more than 1,000 mostly small dams, but some increasingly large dams like uh, like this one, like the Elwha River. Uh, but we're restoring ecosystems uh, and we're managing to restore the health of many of our rivers. I talked about so, about the demand side of this. Uh, what that what I meant was it's increasingly important that we take the water we're already using and we use it more efficiently, uh, that we use our urban water more carefully with efficient toilets and washing machines and shower heads and industrial processes, where we figure out how to grow more food with less water. And the more we look at the demand side of the equation, the more we understand we're able to take the water that we're already using and put it to more productive use. We can grow more food with less water. We can make more industrial goods and services with less water. Uh, we can shift from flood irrigation to precision sprinklers. Uh, we can use technology to understand that we don't need to water our soils all the time. We can figure out by looking at soil moisture, when it's most appropriate to apply water and where it's most appropriate to apply water. And if we can grow more food with less water, we can reduce pressure on water-scarce ecosystems. We can reduce pressure in water-scarce areas. And frankly, we can reduce the risks of conflicts, political conflicts, over water by using water more efficiently as well. Uh, this is a photograph of Again, a project in the United States where we're capturing urban stormwater that we used to just run into our sewers and let run into the oceans, and we're restoring natural ecosystems and we're recharging groundwater, uh, and that's an important part of the soft path for water as well. Just one last slide to show you, actually two last slides, to show you that I said that we're already beginning to move on this soft path for water. This is a graph that shows two things. It shows total gross national product in the United States, a measure of our economy in the red graph, the gross domestic product uh, in billions of dollars. And it shows in the blue line, total U.S. withdrawals of water, that is withdrawals of water for everything, for agricultural use, for power plant cooling, for our domestic use, for our industrial use, from 1900 up until 2010. And in fact, I have a graph that shows up until recent times as well. And it shows two things. For the first part of the last century, it shows that as our economy grew, our water use grew as well. And you can see those lines move up together in sync. But it also shows that starting in the late 1970s and early 1980s, these two curves split apart. U.S. water withdrawals today are less than they were in 1980, 40 years ago. I'll say that again. We use less water in the United States for everything than we used 40 years ago, despite the fact that our population has grown and our economy has con continued to grow. If these two curves had continued to grow together, we would need almost double the water that we use today in the United States. And I couldn't tell you where that water would come from. We already overtap our groundwater. We already consume 
most of the water in the Western United States and in other parts of the United States, we would not have been able to meet demand for water if the water use had continued to grow as it did in the first part of the century. Now, if we look at per capita water use, per capita water use has decreased much more because population has continued to grow. And what's happening here is we're using water more productively. We're growing more food with less water. Our home appliances are more efficient. Our washing machines, our dishwashers, our toilets are more efficient. We're restoring water to natural ecosystems. We're producing more goods and services more dollars per unit water used. And that's an example that not only is the soft path for water possible, but it's already underway. And that's the good news here. And we see similar kinds of graphs where water use is becoming more efficient, where we're continuing to grow our economies around the world uh, with less water. So some final thoughts. The water problem is real and it's bad. There are human, economic, and environmental costs to failing to address those water problems. But the good news is that not everything is getting worse. We're getting better at using water. We're thinking about new technologies, economic strategies, uh, more institutional strategies. Uh, but I would continue, to, I would argue that we continue to need new thinking about water. Often we still think about water in the old ways. What solutions are sustainable? What solutions are scalable? What solutions are socially responsible? How can we apply both old technologies, but also new technologies? How can we apply better economics, better pricing systems, rethink the way we subsidize water so that we're subsidizing the right things and not the wrong things? How can we have smarter, more integrated institutions? For example, we know that energy and water are closely connected, but often we manage energy over here and, and water over here. But if we managed water and energy together, we could probably produce more energy with less water, and we could probably produce more clean water with less energy. And that's an example of smarter, more in integrated institutions. And finally, we need more action. We need more commitments. We need more partnerships. We need better public communications and social outreach so that the public, which really cares about water, and our politicians and policymakers who ought to care about water, can move us in the right direction. Thank you very much. And I'll stop there, and hopefully we'll have time for some questions. Here's uh, my contact information, the Pacific Institute's website, where many of our publications are available, uh, and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Peter. That has been a very, very, uh, you know, insightful conversation so far. And I think our audience is uh, is excited to just push a few ideas ahead. I mean, um, the conversation that you have raised around soft path and hard path for water, um, you know, for dealing with freshwater issues. Um, we have a question in the Q&A that says, uh, what is the most effective pathway here for you? Is it just to take a, a soft pathway towards addressing water issues or a hard pathway or a mix of both? We have a, actually a question that says, to what extent should we 
make decisions individually by reducing, for example, household water consumption or limiting how often we wash our cars? Um, or shall we go for you know, the pushing for a public policy on changes at a regional or a national level? So I'll just leave the floor for you here to address this question. Thank you. So, so those are great questions. Um, water is, of course, complicated, and it's different. The, the challenges that we face around the world vary from place to place. Uh, water quality issues in one place are not necessarily the same as water quality issues in another. Water scarcity in the hydrology in one place is not the same in another place. And so, uh, in many ways, I talk about global water challenges, but uh, again, in many ways, our water challenges are local. The things that we have to choose to do depend on the local conditions. When I talk about the hard path and the soft path, I don't mean to suggest that um, we don't need hard infrastructure, centralized, big infrastructure. Um, what I really mean is that in some places, we do need those kinds of traditional uh, investments, although I would argue we need to be more careful about how we make them. We need to think about ecosystems when we didn't think about ecosystems, we need to think about local communities and getting communities involved in decision-making. But the actual choice of what we do in a particular place, whether we're focusing on wastewater treatment and reuse and groundwater recharge or demand management, in part depends on the, the nature of our local challenges. Uh, what's right in Northern California isn't even the right thing in Southern California, or what's right in the United States may not be correct in parts of Sub-Saharan Africa or in, in, in different parts of Europe or, or in Southern Asia. Um, the good news is that there are a lot of things that we can do. We ought to be thinking about new supply and we ought to be thinking about efficiency conservation and, de and demand management, and we need to be thinking about smart economics. So we need to do, in many senses, all of these things in different combinations. And that gets to the second part of the question. We do, of course, need individual actions, um, but we individual actions on climate change, for example, are important too, but we also know that they're not enough. We need good governments. We need good policies. We need good big institutions. Uh, to make the kinds of investments that are important, uh, to manage energy and water together. So I can buy an efficient washing machine and an efficient toilet, and I can have a better garden that uses much less water than the old kinds of gardens that many of us used to have here in the richer countries. Uh, and that's an important thing to do, and I've done those things. And my personal water use is much lower today than it was 10 years ago. But we also need good good water institutions. We need good water management. We, good, we need good national investment in infrastructure. So there are things that we need to do as well, but we need our politicians and we need our policymakers to act. Mm, perfect. So I think it's a holistic action. It's a holistic collective action that needs to come from different partners and stakeholders in the ecosystem, including the individuals, right? Yeah. Um, so the next follow-up question that we have in here is something um, from Dr. Melanie uh, van der Hoven, and she's asking uh, about UAE desalination efforts. Um, can you speak a little more critically about these desalination efforts? Do you think they are um, they're beneficial for the long run, and what would what would be the pros and cons of, you know, recharging the water 
the freshwater systems using this this approach. Well, thank you. I, of course, I think Professor Alkaz Zaimi could, could answer the desalination question in UAE better than I. Uh, I have had the opportunity to visit the UAE several times uh, and other desalination plants around the world. Uh, of course, um, the, the Gulf region is a, a region that is incredibly water scarce compared to many other parts of the world. The natural hydrology is dry. Uh, the natural endowment of renewable fresh water resources compared to many parts of the world is very low. Uh, that's one of the reasons why desalination has been so important uh, in the Gulf region. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the investment in big desalination plants has happened and continues to happen. Now, having said that, we know that desalination is expensive. Uh, we know that it's energy intensive. Uh, we know that every country around the world, even those that rely on desalination, could could use water more carefully, more efficiently to reduce the need for desalination. Uh, but we can't eliminate that need when the supply is so critically short. The trick is to do it carefully. The trick is to do it well. The trick is to deal with the the brines in an environmentally sound way. Uh, there are ways of doing doing that, uh, and to continue to improve the technology to the extent possible. Um, so again, that's an example where supply options are important. Wastewater treatment and reuse is an important new source of supply, even in countries that have very limited resources. Um, so you know, even in the United Arab Emirates, even in all of the Gulf states, uh, there is a combination of things that that need to be done. Perfect. Um, so we have also an, a follow-up question from Rohan Litton, and he's saying, when regulating economy, you harm it most of the time, right? And he's saying history has often shown this. Do you think it would be wiser to encourage economic growth with the idea of clean water instead of government regulating certain companies? It's something that we just discussed. Um, uh, he he's saying this might possibly lead to regulation of certain issues, like the fact that the Chinese uh, sea has suffered greatly from the lack of care. However, it also offers economic prosperity to many, um, you know, uh, to many stakeholders in the region. How do we how do we go around this? So, if I understand the question correctly. Um there, there is a—I I didn't talk about this much, but an important institutional tool that we all have as countries around the world uh, is government regulation and oversight. It's critical that we put in place laws to protect access to safe water and sanitation and water quality and that, reg, that we regulate industrial use of water— uh, uh, I did mention briefly, for example, in the United States, when we had an environmental movement in the 1960s, one of the things that came out of it was centralized government regulation about water quality. We regulated industrial contamination. We regulated industrial discharges of water. We regulated the quality of water uh, that could be provided to individuals in terms of uh, addressing contaminants that could be in that water. Uh, so regulation is an important tool as well. And the Chinese have learned this uh, after years of not managing and not regulating their water. They're slowly beginning to address, uh, as their economy has improved, water regulation and water management. But that continues to be a challenge around the world. I would also note 
The industrial sector has an important role to play here. I talked a lot about governments and individuals, but uh, there's a very important role for industries as well. And there's an important movement underway through, for example, uh, the United Nations has something called the CEO Water Mandate, which is an effort to get corporations to use water more sustainably, uh, to move toward um, uh, more careful use of water in the industrial sector, more careful discharge of water uh, to get the industrialized part of the world, which is a big user of water, uh, to play an important role in water management as well. Okay, perfect. I think uh, Rohan also was concerned about the fact that maybe if we took such systematic approaches, we tend to eliminate the livelihood of people who are living on certain water resources and certain, you know, um, um, you know, jobs that are centered around these water resources in certain parts of the world. Um, so how can we strike a balance? The, so the next question we have is from uh, Albert Goldson, and I think it's all, all about the balance. Uh, how can we set priorities of water usage between what we, how we are using water for agriculture, for example, or for energy? Um, you talked in your slides about the fact uh, of restoring the river and how they eliminated the dam to protect um, you know, the aquatic life that existed in the river. But what would you say these are also considered, dams are considered one of the cleanest uh, sources of generating energy. So how can you strike a balance between these decisions when it comes to the fields of agriculture and energy? And what would be the priorities in this aspect? Yes. Yeah, so, of course, the, the question of balance is the most difficult one. Um, the, the balance in the 20th century with the hard path was to ignore the environment entirely, to meet human needs, to build dams where we needed them so we could have hydropower and water storage in the wet season so we could use water in the dry season. We didn't have any balance in that sense. And part of the idea of the soft path is to rethink the idea of balance, uh, to figure out how to meet human needs and ecosystem needs in a more equitable and fair way. And maybe this gets to the earlier question as well about the human right to water. Uh, the human right to water is in part a question about balance as well. It's thinking, it's saying water is not only an economic good. It's not only a commodity. It's also a human right. And if someone doesn't have the economic ability to pay for water, you cannot deny them a basic water need. And that's part of the balance as well. So I'm not arguing we need to take down all the dams. Um, their dams are incredibly important for hydropower, for water supply, for dealing with droughts, for flood protection. But a balance, a way to think about the balance is let's remove those dams when the value they provide to us uh, is not as big as the damage that they are causing us. Now, when we didn't care about the environment and we didn't, we didn't value the environment, we built dams everywhere. But the example I gave of that fairly big dam in Washington state, we decided that the relatively low energy value of that dam was lower than the environmental value of that dam today. And we figured out a different way to provide the small amount of energy that that dam provided. We're building wind and solar and renewable energy. And we replaced the hydropower that that dam provided. And now the ecological value is being restored. So that's an example where 
We're beginning to think about the balance in a different way. We're beginning to measure different things. And uh, those kinds of decisions are going to have to be made on a case-by-case basis around the world. But ecosystems have value too, and humans have value for basic needs as well. Yeah, I do agree with you. It's a global issue with a local uh, problem-solving uh, mechanisms that has to take a place. And the next question we have from uh, Ruland, and he's asking um, about the fact it is a global problem, but how can we address this issue for third world countries, for example, who are suffering the most from the lack of freshwater uh, resources? Uh, what kind of three priorities that you could put in place to change, to advocate for change, for example, for third world countries that would be very beneficial? So part of the question is, what what are countries that are struggling missing? Are they missing good institutions? Or are they missing money and investment? Or are they missing uh, legal structures that help them manage rivers that may cross a border? Because um, a lot of the water resources around the world are shared by more than one country. And that raises, of course, as I described earlier, some of the political challenges. Um, and so... What's needed in part from the international community is information about what works. It might be engineering assistance. Uh, it might be technical and financial assistance uh, in terms of green bonds and financial tools that permit a country that doesn't have the economic resources to invest in the kinds of infrastructure that we need. One of the top priorities, in my opinion, uh, is improving the efficiency of agricultural water use uh, many countries are dependent on uh, internal agriculture for domestic food production, but many of them could grow more food with the water they have available to them. They could replace irrigation systems. Uh, they could move to more modern soil moisture monitoring, as I mentioned, um, and that would let them grow more food with less water. Uh, but that might require a better institutional arrangement for agricultural management, or it might require technology for irrigation efficiency or for soil moisture monitoring or for remote sensing. There's more and more remote sensing that's available that helps us manage agricultural water use better. Those are all examples of technologies that are available. There's money that's available. There are, there's institutional knowledge that's available. You know, I said at the beginning we know how to solve our water problems. Uh, and in places where we haven't, it's important to understand why we haven't and then to provide those things that help us move forward on the soft path. Perfect. And I think the next question that we have from Ajaya is something also related to uh, establishing the blind spots that we have around us and uh, when we discuss water, uh, freshwater issues. And he's saying... The graph that you have presented for Swiss Re and the yellow color, which means the storms, are, which are on increase, for example, um, this would lead us to try to understand when we have extreme you know, uh, uh, environmental circumstances, how can we use that um, to solve our water issues more efficiently? For example, if we have a, a flooding situation in one part of the world or a storm that's happening in another part of the world, what is the global systemized solution that we could build to, to have um, 
you know, a quicker uh, mitigation and response uh, mechanism? So, yes, another, another excellent question. Um, there are two pieces to this, I think. One is we need to understand, for example, the connections between extreme events and climate change. Uh, and as our climate science has continued to improve, we're learning that our droughts, our floods, our extreme rainfall, our extreme river flow because of snow, snow melt and rising temperatures, uh, the risk of rising sea levels and impacts on coastal ecosystems and coastal aquifers. We need to understand the risk that we face from climate change. The more we understand those risks, the more we are likely to address the issue of climate change, to deal with trying to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases so that those impacts don't get worse and worse. That's one piece of this. But the other piece of this is that no matter what we do on the greenhouse gas emissions side, we know that we have to deal with impacts of climate change that are now unavoidable. We have to think about what are we going to do to address severe flooding and severe droughts? How can we make our societies more resilient to these kinds of extreme events? How can we stop building in floodplains, for example? How can we build water supplies that are more resilient to droughts that are worse than they've been in the past so that we have multiple sources of water uh, that are less vulnerable to drought, recharging groundwater in wet years so that we can pump groundwater in dry years, uh, building reservoirs that store water in wet periods so that we can use it in dry periods, investing sometimes in desalination, which is more drought resilient. It's more expensive and more difficult to manage sometimes from an energy perspective, but in drought periods provides a source of supply that is a little more resilient than natural rainfall. So we have to deal with the impacts of climate change that we can no longer avoid, but we also have to work to avoid worsening the climate impacts that'll make these extreme events an increasingly serious problem in the future. Yeah, we do agree on this 100%. Um, so, Rohan, Rohan is saying again, do you think that maybe we're overanalyzing the problem and trying to exert a higher level of control? Um, he's saying, can't we use ocean water and purify it? Don't you think that fossil fuel that will run out on either 2050 or 2100 um, is it possible that CO2 levels will recover quickly, environmental issues will be resolved, and maybe we are making a big deal out of this? No, <laughs> I don't. Um, CO2 levels will not recover. CO2 levels are going to stay elevated for centuries because CO2 stays in the atmosphere for a long time, even if we were to stop emitting greenhouse gases today, which unfortunately we're not able to do. So we have to move as fast as possible to eliminate the use of fossil fuels, to move to non-carbon emitting sources of energy. Uh, but we're going to be dealing with some unavoidable impacts of climate change for a long, long time. Uh, whether we're over-analyzing the problem, I'm an academic and we analyze problems. Um, I think if we're not aware of the nature of the problems and the nature of the severity of the problems, we're not going to be in a position to address them. Uh, and part of the problem with climate change, this, this wasn't really a climate change talk, it was really a water talk, but of course climate is a piece of this. But part of the 
the difficulty we face on climate change now is that we ignored the problem for decades. Scientists have been saying for decades that we understand that increasing concentrations of CO2 will change the climate, and we have failed to address the problem. And now the impacts that we're seeing that are clearly associated with climate change are partly the result of our failure to deal with this problem decades ago, uh, and we're still continuing not to deal with it as aggressively as we need to. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so we have a question from one of our attendees um, that says, excuse me, I just have to, what would you say was the major reason for water usage not increasing following the trend of the increasing U.S. economy in the last half of the 20th century to present? Uh, that's a great question, and it's a difficult one to answer. Uh, there are multiple reasons for that, for breaking those two curves apart. Uh, one is, in the 70s, we had started to implement some of the environmental protections that I've already described. And some of those environmental protections, the national laws and the state laws to protect water quality, increase the efficiency of water use. Our washing machines, our dishwashers, our industries started to become more efficient. It used to take 200 tons of water, for example, to make a ton of steel in the United States. Today, the most efficient steel plants only use four or five tons of water to make a ton of steel. That's a 95 and 98% reduction in the amount of water required to make steel. And that's another example of how our economy has continued to grow, but our water use has dropped enormously. Uh, we're changing the way we use water for energy production. We're using less one-time cooling of water in different kinds of cooling systems. That's reduced the water required for our energy system. We're growing more food with less water because we're changing our irrigation system. All of those things have let us grow our economy while using less water. But another reason is the, the structure of our economy has changed. Some of our heavy industry now is not in the United States anymore, but it's goods and services that we import from other countries, from China, from other parts of the world. And that has resulted in some of the water use in the United States being moved overseas to other countries. And to be honest, that's another reason why our water use per unit of GNP has gone down a little bit. But I would note that even in China, water use per unit of GNP is beginning to go down as they're becoming more efficient in their water use as well. Yeah. So it's a mix of globalization, economic globalization, and as well, um, a strive of being efficient on water use globally. Um, exactly. So, perfect. So we have a question from Jayaraj, and he's asking, how can we address the problem of microplastics contamination in freshwater? And it's, it's a great challenge to the availability of freshwater resources in the future. A uh, very difficult question and one I, I, I'm not really competent to answer. Uh, the plastics issue has uh, grown enormously and our understanding of the plastics issue has grown enormously in the last few years as we've started to measure microplastics in water. We realize it's a new source of contamination. Uh, the problem, of course, is a plastics problem. Uh, it's a water contamination problem, but the source is the way we make and use plastics. 
Uh, we have to de- get the plastics issue under control, and we're nowhere near doing that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you, you probably should have a whole separate lecture about the plastics industry and and the challenges that we face associated with it. Uh, but we have to think about uh, recovering plastics. We have to think about reducing the amount of plastics that we use. Uh, we have to think about water treatment that might be capable of removing some of the plastics that we now are beginning to find in our water resources. Um, and I would note, plastics isn't the only water contamination issue that we're not really dealing with. There are all sorts of new contaminants that in the United States, our U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has failed to deal with, not just for the last four years, but for years before that. We need to do better about a whole set of contaminants that we now find in our water resources. Perfect. So we have a next question from Dr. Dirk Rector, and he's uh, saying, I understand that the individual consumption is not the most important aspect here. However, what are the best practices or approaches to educate individuals and communities to use water more efficiently and have less waste-oriented approaches? And can I add something to this? How can we build a global movement toward adopting the soft approach that you have just described in your in your uh, lecture a while ago like how can we crowdsource this maybe this is the best approach i mean in today's economy i think the power is in the hands of the consumers and so how can we push water issues and in the hands of consumer rather than just take control yeah so the good news here is that <clears throat> Every example I, I see of the soft path for water, of these new strategies for thinking about supply, new strategies for thinking about demand, uh, new economic approaches, new institutional approaches, every example I see come from the real world where something successful is already happening. We're already growing more food with less water. We already have technologies for our homes that let us do the things we want with less water. Our industries are already becoming engaged in dealing with water contamination and water efficiency. Um, the other piece of good news about this is that there are all sorts of opportunities on the educational side to deal with getting the news out about, first of all, the crisis that we face, the challenges that we face, but also these successful examples. Social media is turned out to be an incredibly valuable tool for educating the public about what the issues are in any field, what the solutions are in any field. Education is changing the way we deal with all of these problems. You know, my ability to speak to a bigger and bigger audience now, even in the in the case of a pandemic, uh, because of some of these new tools like Zoom, has, has enormously raised the opportunity to educate the public about what some of these issues are. And I would encourage everyone to use all of the tools of social media I'm on Twitter all the time, <laughs> too too much, many of my, my family members think, um, to educate people about the good news about these. Not, it's not just bad news, but there are things that each of us can do as individuals to learn about individual actions, but also help educate our policymakers about what they ought to be doing as well. Yeah. And I think we had, we, as you were talking about, Triham Jia, who is an environmental scientist, and she has a concentration in natural resources and conservation as a major. And she wanted to ask you, what is the most effective way youth 
could do something about this issue through volunteer work? Or you just mentioned social media, but she asked, what is the silver bullet here? What can they do to be much more effective on advocating for the cause? So I've always argued that there is not ever a single thing that is a silver bullet. Uh, As I said at the beginning, water is very interdisciplinary. Uh, Water affects everything we care about. And so the good news there is that uh, there are solutions in every field. Uh, uh, Again, I think there are individual actions we need to take. We need to educate our policymakers. We need to think about new technologies and new financial tools. There there is no silver bullet solution to this. Um, You know, in the United States, I tell all of the audiences that I speak to that that as individuals, one of the best things we can do is vote because we have an opportunity to influence who runs our water systems, who runs our political systems. uh, And that in turn determines the laws that are passed and how enforcement of our laws happens. We're in the middle of an election cycle right now. So of course I would say that, but but participating as individuals in local decisions about water management. Uh, You know, I tell people, participate in your local your local water district and your local water utility um, they often have an enormous influence on the kinds of things that happen to us as, as individuals so there are lots of things that we, we could be doing as educators as engineers as scientists as communicators as as lawmakers yeah we need the whole community to be part of this act right you know actually yes that that's exactly right um, you know again in the hard path, A hundred years ago and 20 years ago, decisions about water were made by a very small number of people in a very small number of institutions, uh, mostly engineers, mostly, forgive me, men. And I I have an engineering degree and I'm a man, but, but that's the way it was. And mostly water utilities or centralized government agencies. But the opportunity for a much bigger community to be involved in these decisions today uh, is is tremendous. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'm sure. Uh, I think the number of of social businesses that are centered around water uh, in 2019 and 2020 has been on the rise, and it's it's great to see that the global economy is responding to this and taking a serious serious action towards this. Uh, so we have a, another question is, which says, do you think that the restoration of water ecosystems in California would restore it from drought? Uh, was California's drought caused by using so much water? Uh, doesn't the population size affect water supplies at a point? Um, a population stops growing and water will stop rising, right? Uh, so this is, again, a question from Litton. Yeah. Yes. So um, California, like every part of the world, is vulnerable to extreme events. We have wet years. We have dry years. Uh, California is a relatively dry state. Uh, We recently had the worst five-year drought on record from 2011 to 2016. And we're in another drought right now. Um, If you've been seeing the news about the wildfires in California, uh, that's in part because of the severe hydrologic drought that we're in. Our forests are very dry. Um, I'm hoping our rainy season, which typically starts October 1, will be a good one. But droughts mean different things. We can have a hydrologic drought, which is a function of how much water nature provides. 
But we can also have an economic drought that's caused by, as the question raises, the demand for water and the size of the population that we have. California's water problems are a combination of all of those things, uh, as are most water problems around the world. It's a combination of what nature gives us and extreme events, but also the number of people we have to meet, their, uh, that, whose needs we have to meet, the size of the agricultural sector, uh, the institutions that we built to manage water. Many of our ecological problems in California, as they are elsewhere around the world, are the result of the fact that it's a relatively dry state, and we have a very, very large population. We have 40 million people in California living on a relatively scarce amount of water. And we built a lot of infrastructure to move water around and to store water, and to, and that's been relatively successful. But in, again, in the 20th century, at the cost of damaging our ecosystem, we're slowly starting to restore some water to our natural ecosystem. And we're able to do that because we're investing in more efficient industry. We're investing in more efficient homes. We're getting rid of inefficient gardens. Uh, we're improving our agricultural water use. And that's letting us free up a little bit of water to restore water for natural ecosystems. Our population is continuing to grow. Uh, population is a big part of this worldwide. The larger the population, the more difficult it is to meet all of these demands. And until we get the population issue under control, that will continue to be a, a part of the challenge we face. Yeah, I do agree on this. Um, so I have a question. So what kind of opportunities do you foresee that we do have at the moment and we should use for the next three years? There are top priorities to, to take advantage of in terms of addressing the problem that we have on the, on the ground at the moment with the water, freshwater issues? So, of course, we need to do a lot of things. Um, one opportunity that has come up in the last nine months, really, uh, has to do with the pandemic. The pandemic has been a terrible thing. Obviously, the United States has, disaster, has, has handled it in a terrible fashion compared to many parts of the world. But one of the things we've learned from the pandemic that maybe some of our politicians and policymakers have come to realize is the important connection between water and public health. Obviously, at the very beginning of the pandemic, the first thing we were told was wash our hands, sanitation, understand the way viruses are transmitted. Uh, and we learned then the importance of connecting clean water, safe water, and sanitation for everyone with public, public health. I'm hoping that as we get the pandemic under control, as we slowly begin to move out of it, we'll keep in our minds that idea that water and public health are critical and that we have to meet basic human needs for water and sanitation for 100% of the global population. And of course, that's one of the objectives of the Sustainable Development Goals of the UN. SDG 6, the Sustainable Development Goal number 6, one of the targets is meet basic water and sanitation for everyone on the planet by the year 2030. We're behind the times, we're falling behind in meeting that target, but that's an opportunity, uh, that's, an, uh, that's an example of an opportunity that I think we need to meet. Yeah, I mean, um, there has been some claims that uh, the COVID-19 and the pandemic 
has, uh, you know, has increased awareness of sea, sea level rise issues uh, by 2040. And also it maybe improved uh, the way we're dealing with, with, with fresh water issues around the world as well, as you have just discussed. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I think that's a wrap for us tonight, unless you have any final thoughts, Peter, um, or any final remarks to make for our audience. I think we'll be wrapping up. So let me just say, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today. The questions were superb. Uh, it was a great audience. Uh, it, it's an indication how much we care about water uh, is the fact that people are asking such good questions. And I just want to leave you with a message that I do think we're facing many severe water challenges, as I described, but I also truly believe that we're in a transition to a more sustainable future for water. I think that transition's underway. We see it with these successful examples, these success stories in all the sectors around the world. And the trick for all of us is to be engaged enough to see those successes, to scale them up to a large degree, and to move forward toward a more sustainable water future. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Looking forward to have you here uh, in UAE very soon. Uh, our um, thank you for the audience who is connecting with us from around the globe. And I hope that you that you had a very insightful evening like I did. And um, hopefully we'll make much conscious decisions about water all around us because I think it's a community responsibility. Um, thank you so much, Peter. And uh, looking forward to see you soon here with us in UAE. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.